Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding chapter 8, page 942. In the previous chapter, Alter Rebbe explained that creation does not affect any change within God. Not only doesn't it affect any change within God, it doesn't even affect any change within his knowledge. Because God's knowledge is not like human knowledge. Human knowledge is a difference before you know something and after you know something. Before you know something, you didn't know it. And now you acquired knowledge. You learned something new. You acquired new, new knowledge. But with Hashem, there is no change. There is no acquisition of new knowledge because how does Hashem know everything? Hashem knows everything because He knows Himself. He knows Himself and therefore He knows everything. So He, ex- he was before everything came into existence. So even after everything came into existence, nothing changes. He knows himself, and therefore he knows everything. So there is no difference before, there is no difference after, even in his knowledge. He doesn't know anything new. There is nothing new to know. There's nothing, it's not like there was Hashem and now there's something else. Everything is, comes from Hashem, everything is within Hashem. So there's nothing new. Hashem knows himself, he knows everything. And there really is nothing to know. Because really there's nothing but Hashem. So what is everything really? From God's perspective, everything is really Hashem. So, so what's there to know? <laughs> he, knows, he knows himself. The knowledge is he knows himself. And the thing that he's knowing by man, before you didn't know, and now you learn something. You walk away, you learn something. So you know something new. And you know something outside of you. Something that's separate from you. And now you, you became aware of it. So now you learn something. You learn something new. But with Hashem, he knows everything because he knows himself. Everything comes from himself. So he didn't change. And there's nothing new to learn because everything that's out there is really all Him. So all there is is Hashem. And this is very difficult for man to really understand and to really appreciate. And now the Rebbe is going to explain that the same is true not only of God's knowledge, but the same is true also of all of God's attributes. And that Maimonides says that God and the knowing and the knowing is all one Inseparable, it doesn't only refers to Hashem's knowledge, it refers to all of Hashem's attributes, even Hashem's emotional attributes. And that's the theme of the following chapter, chapter 8. When you say the um, Hashem's attributes, that, that's the Sfirot? The Sfirot. All the, all the attributes? All the Sfirot. Okay. All the emanations. And he's going to explain in detail. Now, what Maimonides, a blessed memory, has said that the Holy One, blessed be He, His essence and being and His knowledge are completely one, a perfect unity and not a composite at all. Perfect unity. By us, human beings, there's no such thing as a perfect unity. When you say a person is one, one person, reminds me of the joke, the person comes to a psychiatrist, he's suffering from multiple, personal- multiple personalities. But he wanted a group discount. (laughs) (laughs) So when we say a person is one, there's no such a thing as perfect unity. A person is not really one. A person is a composite of many different parts. 
there's the brain, and then there's the emotions, and then there's the uh, expressions, and then, then, then the brain itself is composed of three different parts. There's the person who knows, there's the ability to know, the brain, the intellectual capacity, and then there is the knowledge. But it's a composite. It's like you mix something together until it becomes one. It's not an absolute unity, it's an external unity. You bring them together until they be- you tie it up in such knots it becomes one. But it's not an, a real unity. Absolute unity means that there's an inherent unity. There's an inner connection. There's an inherent unity, an absolute unity, inseparable. It's really part of, of one, interlinked, interrelated, interconnected, really all part of one, one dynamic, one indivisible, indivisible dynamic. This is very difficult for us human beings to relate to. Because everything in our world is basically is made up of building blocks. Everything is made up of building blocks, composite of different things put together. It's no abs- right, compartmentalized. Compartmental- There's no absolute unity. You have the brain, and you have the in- within the brain itself, you have the wisdom and understanding, and you have knowledge, the creative mind, the right brain, and the left brain, and the integrative mind. And then you have your heart, and, you have, and in- within the emotions itself, you have this type of emotion and this opposite emotion. And, uh, and then you have expression, thought, and speech, and action. A person is, is a composite. So it's very difficult for us to relate to everything in our life is really a composite. It's compartmentalized. So it's difficult for us to even relate to the idea of absolute unity. When Maimonides describes that God is absolutely one. God is an absolute unity. When you say God knows, which is a contradiction, knowledge is a contradiction to unity because knowledge means there's before you know and there's after you know. There's a change. <coughs> before you didn't know, now you know. That's a composite. You can't say that about God, because God is, is absolute unity. And therefore, Manus explains that God, the knowing, the knower, and the known is all one. And he says it's very difficult for a person to relate to it, because nothing in our life is like that. We're not like that. Our whole universe is basically compartmentalized, a composite, a building block of different things that merge, that unite, that connect that are tied together, but not an inherent unity, an absolute unity from within. So he says, so that's not only true of knowledge, but the same is true of everything else as well. Continue. This applies equally to all the attributes of the Holy One, blessed be He, and to all His holy names, and the designations which the prophets and sages of blessed memory have ascribed to Him, such as gracious, merciful, beneficent, and the like. This is also true with respect to his being called wise, as it is written, and he is also wise. And likewise, with respect to his will, as it is written, God desires those who fear him, and he wishes to do kindness, and he desires the repentance of the wicked, and does not desire their death and wickedness. Thus we have verses indicating both what he finds desirable and undesirable. So too. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil. Yet another thing that he does not desire. Above verse, then, we see that emotion, wisdom, and will are all ascribed to God, nevertheless. Okay, so, so he starts from, like, from the bottom up. First, you have the emotions. God is kind. God is merciful, gracious, 
then he goes to the intellect. God is wise. And then he goes to the will. The will is superior. Just like the intellect is superior to the, to the emotions, so too the will is superior to the intellect. So he goes from one level to the next, and we find descriptions in the verses in the Torah, how the Torah ascribes all of these attributes to God. God is wise, God is kind, God is wise, God wills, desires. He desires, as we say in Yom Kippur, in the prayer, God desires the wicked person to do teshuva. Okay, Jeff, want to continue? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, his will and his wisdom and his attribute of kindness and his mercy and his other attributes do not add plurality and composition. Hashem forbid to his essence and being, but his being and essence and his will and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and his attribute of kindness and his might and mercy and beauty, the last of which is composed of his kindness and might, and likewise his other holy attributes, all the above, comprising his being and essence and his will and the sephirot of Chabad and the Midot, constitute an absolute perfect unity, which is his very being and essence. Just like Maimonides says in regard to his knowledge, the same is true in regard to all of his attributes. That all of his attributes are an absolute unity. What, what is the word middle? Emotional attributes. So all of his attributes, all of his attributes are an absolute unity. That not only can't you separate within God, you can't separate between his will, his wisdom, and his emotional attributes, but in addition, they are not a composite. They are absolutely one with God. And there is a discussion, actually. The Jewish philosophers, Maimonides and the Kuzri, believe that you can't attribute any emotional attributes to God. God doesn't get angry. God doesn't get sad. God doesn't get jealous. God doesn't rejoice. But he told motion in the, in the studies was angry. Huh? So it says clearly in the Torah that God says, I will get angry, I'll get excited, I'll be joyful. So how can, how can you say that God is emotionless? And they explain. They explain it the same way we find in the Torah, the expression, the hand of God. Surely God has no hand. The eyes of God. God has no eyes. The ears of God. It's a metaphor. The right arm? The always... Right arm, the left arm. So God has no arm. No one believes that God has an arm. God has a body. But it says in the Torah, the hand of God and the ear of God and the eyes of God and the nose of God. It's a metaphor. That the Torah is trying to speak in the language of man. In a way that we can relate to. So just like when a person, when you hug someone, you, you, you embrace them with your right arm. So we talk about God's right arm. When you get angry at someone, you hit them with the left arm. So God speaks of his left arm. God, when you look, you look with your eyes. So when you're saying God is watching, you use a metaphor, God's eyes. It's a metaphor. So too, the exact same way they say when we speak about God's emotional attributes, that it's a metaphor. God gets angry. We don't mean God gets angry. What does a human being do when he gets angry? 
you act in a way, you act in a way to express that anger. You get angry, you punish someone. So when you, someone is punished, you say, oh, the person must be angry. So when Hashem behaves in a way, when Hashem acts with us in a way, that it appears to be as if he's angry. The way a human being would act if he was angry. So we say, God is angry. We're discussing the result. It's like the result of anger. If God would have been angry, you know, just like when a human being is angry, he punishes you. So when God punishes a person, you say that God is angry. When you say God rejoices, not that God rejoices. But when a person rejoices, you act in a certain way. When you love someone, you rejoice with them, you behave in a certain way, you express yourself in a certain way. So when God shows someone kindness. So we use a metaphor, a human metaphor, to help us understand. We say God is rejoicing, God loves you, God is excited about you. But they claim you can't say that God gets excited because otherwise you have a problem. We believe, as the verse says, the world does not affect God. If you're going to say that God changes His moods, he gets angry, he gets excited, he gets sad, he, he loves, he hates, he's steaming, mad, he's jumping with joy, ecstasy, he wills, he doesn't will, he changes his mind, doesn't change his mind. So then God is full of changes. And how can you say, God say, I haven't changed. Creation hasn't affected me. Of course creation affects you. You react to creation, you respond to creation. We make you angry, we make you happy, we make you jump, we make you dance, we make you sad, we make you cry. So they say, therefore you can't say that God gets angry, that God reacts to creation. God is too aloof. God is too transcendent. Creation doesn't affect him. So God doesn't get angry and God doesn't get excited. But God responds and it appears to be. It's a human metaphor. And when a person does a mitzvah and God rewards us. So they use the human, Torah uses a human metaphor. Just like the Torah says God's hands, the Torah uses a human metaphor. God is excited. Not that God gets excited. Or when Hashem, something negative happens to us, that to use a human metaphor, we say God is angry. And he's, of course, God doesn't, angry, God, God doesn't react. That is the Jewish philosophical approach. The Kabbalah and Hasidism rejects this approach. They say, no, when the Torah says God gets angry, there's anger. When God is steaming, he's steaming. When God is excited, he's excited. And nevertheless, the verse states, God that doesn't change. It doesn't affect God. That God remains unaffected. As we learned earlier, that although God contains the world, but He's not contained by the world. So although God contains all of these attributes, but God is not contained by these attributes. He's not defined by these attributes. Like the, like the sun is not affected by the light that emanates from the sun. It makes no difference to the sun whether there is light or there is no light, whether it's a, the, the clouds are blocking the light, whether you pull your window shade down, or whether, or whether you're lighting, um, you're illuminating um, a garbage dump or you're illuminating a palace. It doesn't even affect the light. But truly it doesn't affect the sun whether you, there is light or there is no light. The sun remains unaffected. So too the emanation that comes from God are like the light that emanates from God. So it doesn't affect God. Even God gets angry. The anger of God, or God's love, or God's mercy, or God's compassion, it doesn't affect God. Especially since these emotions are not in reaction to us, to human beings. These emotions emanate from God, irrespective of what's happening with us. God's love is always there. 
is always revealed, is always there. Nothing to do with us, because it emanates from God. So God is not affected by us. So God doesn't change. So these emotional attributes are not a composite. It's an absolute unity. They're unified with God. God's will and His wisdom and His excitement, His emotional attributes, His love and His strength and His mercy and His compassion, which are the main attributes, the main emotional attributes. Those are the main emotional attributes. All of these are one with God, with an absolute unity. Not a composite. It's not that God is made up of ten. It's really all one, unified within the infinite, unified within God. And just like Maimonides says that God and His wisdom are one and inseparable, because the, knowing, the knower, God, and, and the ability to know, God's wisdom, and the, now the knowing is all one and inseparable. So too, God and His will, and what He wills, and God and His wisdom, and what, and the wisdom itself, and the knowledge and the awareness, and God and His emotional attributes, and the thing that He's relating to, to what He's relating to, all of that is inseparable. All of that is unified with God, is one with God. And this is something that's very difficult for us to relate to. But if you look at the order, Maimonides, is, uh, if you look at the order of the Tanya, he tells us a reverse order. First he starts out, he says, when he describes God's attributes, he says God's emotional attributes, and then he works his way up to God's wisdom, and then he works his way up to God's will, power. And then, page 944, which Jeff just read, when he describes how God in his essence is one and inseparable from his will and his wisdom and his emotional attributes. So first he starts with his will, then he goes to his wisdom, reverse order. Why does he change order? Because there's a big difference between will and wisdom and emotions. Will, relative to wisdom and emotion, really has no independent reality. What is will? What is will? Will is really, it's, it's, it's a channel. The word ratzen in Hebrew, will, if you turn the letters around, is tzinar, like a channel. Will is just the channeling of you, of your soul. That my soul wants this. It's nothing on its own. All it is, it's channeling you. I want this. It's not about the object. It's about me. The only reason it has is because I want it. Not that the object means it's because I want it, and that's why it's meaningful to me. So really, it's all self-expression. There's nothing other than self-expression. There's nothing other than I. There's, there's nothing independent. You can't separate the will from the person who's willing. Unlike intellect, a concept, I could separate a concept from the person who understands it. 
The concept is a concept. If you don't understand it, someone else understands it. You don't understand it today, you'll understand it tomorrow. But a concept is a concept. Two plus two is four is a concept. It's not dependent on my understanding it. It has nothing to do with me. It's a concept. I understand it, so I understand it. I don't understand it yet, I don't understand it. But the concept is there. The concept has an objective reality. The concept is a concept. Independent of me. When I understand it, I, it's a composite. I have merged a concept with me, and now I have absorbed this concept, and I have become one with this concept, and I understand this concept. But the concept is separate, and the person is separate. With willpower, you can't separate the two. Because there are no two elements. What is will? Will is nothing. Will is, 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 is a total self-expression. That's what will is. It's expressing result. myself. It's a result. Of my turning in this direction, this is what I want. So it's meaningful to me only because I want it. If I don't want it, then, then, then there's nothing. It's not like there's, there's a will and then there's I and then you bring the two together. Will is really all about self-expression. I want it. I get pleasure from it. I want it. It's all about me, really. While wisdom, understanding, and knowledge and especially, and is, is really an independent reality. That's almost apart from me. And when I understand something, I become one with it. I become one with the concept. I internalize the concept. I digest the concept. I merge with the concept. I make it my own. I wrap my mind around it and I make it my own. So there you can see the composite of two separate things. The same thing is even with emotional attributes. Emotional attributes is really, it's a, a description of a person. A person hates, a person loves. So it's, it's a, there's an object that's worthy of hating, something you're repulsed by. There's an object that's attractive, that's worthy of love. This is a lovable object. And this is a repulsive object. So it's almost objective. When you express that love that, or that repulsion, you've merged with that, you've made it your own. I love this object. I'm attracted to this object. I'm repulsed by this object, by this person, or by this concept, whatever. But it's a composite. So you can see it's a composite of two things. While willpower, relative to intellect and to emotion, you don't see two things there. Really, all there is is, it's really I. It's a self-expression. That's all there is. That's what makes the whole will. The will is nothing to do, there's nothing outside of me. It's not that the thing is lovable, the thing is not lovable. It's me. I want this. I don't want this. It's all about, it's all, there's nothing outside of me. It's all me. So when you talk of willpower, it's already easier to picture the idea that it's, it's, in a subtle way, it's not an absolute unity, but it's as unified as a human being could get. All there is is me. There's nothing but me. There's nothing, it's not a composite of two separate things. It's my self-expression. There's nothing outside of me. It's me. My turning in this direction, my making it meaningful, my making it a willing thing, because I want it. That's why it, that, that's why it has meaning to me. There's nothing else. So it's all about me, my self-expression. So really there isn't a composite of two things. 
There isn't an objective reality outside of me. It's really me. It's my sinner, my turning in this direction, my channeling myself in this direction. So in relative to the intellect, this is the closest a human being can get to the idea of, 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 a, of a unity. It's not an absolute unity. Because still, you still have the essence of the person himself. And then you have when the person channels himself into a direction, when he wants something. So it's already something added to the person. There's the person, the way he is alone, the soul, the way you are alone, and then the way is the soul wants something outside of him. Yes, it's not about the outside object. It's not about, there's nothing objective here. It's all about me because I want it and that's why it's meaningful to me. But nevertheless, you're channeling yourself into something outside of you. So there is, subtly, there is a composite of two separate things. But it's only subtle. In comparison to intellect, it's the closest we can get to the idea. It's a unity. It's all about my soul. There's nothing else. There's nothing really outside of me. It's all about my wanting this that makes it meaningful. So when he says that God is one and God is inseparable and God is an absolute unity, the first thing he tells us is unity. But then he tells us even a bigger thing. Even more so. Not only is God one and an perfect unity, an absolute unity with His willpower, but God is even an absolute unity with intellect. When it comes to intellect, when we look into our own experience, when we know intellect, intellect is already a composite, by definition. There isn't knowledge, and knowledge is divorced from me. It's an objective. Two plus two is four exists before I know of it. When I know of it, it's not my knowing that makes 2 plus 2 is 4. 2 plus 2 is 4 is a concept. You can understand that. I can understand it. And we both understand the same thing. When you want something and I want something, it's not the same thing. It's two separate things. Because it's two individuals. It's two separate people. What makes it meaningful to you is because I want it. And he wants it. So it's not like... Two plus, if two people understand the same concept, 2 plus 2 is 4, it's really the same thing. You understand the concept? You understand? It's an objective concept. It's a logical concept, an objective concept, and you both, you both have good heads and you both understand it. But when you both want something, it's two different worlds. It's meaningful to me because I want it. And it's meaningful to you because you want it. So it, it's, it's all about you. But when you understand the concept, it's not because I understand the concept that the concept is a concept. The concept is a concept, objectively. When I assimilate the concept, and I internalize the concept, and I digest the concept, wrap my mind around the concept, and really understand it and grasp it, and it becomes one with me, so that's a composite. There's me, and then there's the concept. So that's what he says. Not only is God in his will one, an inseparable and inherently one and a perfect absolute unity. But even God and His wisdom is one. And even more so, even God and His emotional attributes, which seem to be even more external to the person, and a composite. Something lovable, something repulsive. But God and His will and God and His wisdom and God and His emotional attributes are absolutely one. Perfect unity. Not only can't you separate between the will, not like a human being. A human being, will is will, wisdom is wisdom, understanding is understanding, knowledge is knowledge, emotional is emotional, thought is thought, speech is. With God, it's not so. With God, it's all one. You can't separate God's will 
from his wisdom, from his emotions. And the wisdom itself, and the will itself, and the emotion itself is not either a composite. You can't separate between God, the knower, the ability to know, and the knowing. You can't separate God from, the obj- from his, his, his love and God who loves and uh, the loving. It's all one and the same with God. And that's what he quotes here from Maimonides. Shall you want to continue? And as Maimonides stated. And as Maimonides unquestionably stated, this form of unity, wherein God's knowledge and so on is one with God Himself, is beyond the capacity of the mouth to express, beyond the capacity of the ear to hear, and beyond the capacity of the heart of man to apprehend clearly. For man visualizes in his mind all the concepts which he wishes to conceive and understand all as they are within himself. For instance, if he wishes to envision, decide, the essence of will, or the essence of wisdom, or of understanding, or of knowledge, or the essence of the attribute of kindness and mercy, and the like, he visualizes them all as they are within himself. Just as this is so with regard to an visaging one's own intellect and emotions, so too, regarding an individual's desire to apprehend divine intellect and emotions, he endeavors to do so by deciding intellect and emotions as they are found in himself. He says, the only way a person knows anything, what's the ultimate knowledge? The ultimate knowledge is, as Job says, from my flesh I know God. You can know things from your own personal experience. So when we talk of God's will, when we talk of God's wisdom, we talk of God's emotions... Where do we look when we try to understand it? We look into ourselves. We have will. We have wisdom. We have emotions. So when we try to relate to God, the only way that we can relate to it is by looking, looking to ourselves as an example. And that's the problem. Because you can't compare. Because we have no example of perfect, absolute unity. We are a composite. Everything in our life is a composite. We simply don't have it within us. We are a composite of will, wisdom, emotions. Three different worlds. And each of those in itself is also a composite. There is the soul, and then there is the knowledge, and then there is the knowing. It's three separate items. I can have one without the other. I can have the knower without the knowledge. I can have the knowledge without the knower. I can have the, the knowing without the knowledge. Without, I can have one without the other. But they all come together, and they become one. But it's a composite. They're not an inherent unity. It's not an inner connection. It's a bringing together of different elements. And the same is with emotional attributes. There's the person who loves, there's the love itself. So it's, it's a composite of different aspects that all come together and become one. So we cannot imagine, it's difficult for us to imagine something that's inseparable something that's inherently one and connected. 
something that's interrelated, interconnected, and is really one dynamic entity, one dynamic reality. It's almost impossible for us to relate to it. He says, not impossible. It's impossible for us to truly understand it, but we could, it's almost impossible for us to even to feel it or to relate to it. It is possible, but it's very difficult. Because we don't experience ourselves this way. The truth is that we do have a subconscious reality. And on the subconscious level, we are, the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. We are one dynamic entity, one dynamic, vibrant entity. That's, and it's like a dynamic system where everything is interrelated, interconnected, and we're not a composite. And we're not made up of components. And there is an inherent connection. But we can't access that. It's beyond our conscious world. Our whole world begins with consciousness. And that's what he's going to say next. That our whole world begins with consciousness, with creativity, the initial spark, the eureka, our first introduction of consciousness. What happens beyond that, our subconscious is beyond us, it's beyond our awareness, it's beyond our scope, it's beyond our system, beyond our structure, so it's very difficult for us to relate to. Except, except in a dream state. Except in the dream state. It's so confusing, it doesn't help anyone. Right. So that's why, he says, that's why he says it's possible for us maybe to picture it in our minds, to imagine it. Like in a dream state, you can imagine it, but it's difficult for us to truly grasp. Because our grasp, our grasp is only on a conscious level. Anything that's beyond the conscious level is very vague, it's very fuzzy, it's difficult for us to grasp. We can imagine, we can get a feeling, we can get a sense of a deeper reality of a higher type of reality, of a dynamic reality, a reality which is different than our conscious reality, where everything is a composite and everything is external and it's an external unity. We can get a sense and a picture of a reality which there's an inherent unity, an interconnection, an interconnectedness, an interrelated relationship where everything is interrelated, interconnected, where it's part of one dynamic whole, where the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. But that's not the way we experience life on a conscious level, beginning with, with a creative flash, the first introduction of consciousness, which leads to everything else that happens in our conscious self. Our conscious self, or the structure of our conscious self, is composites. Everything is a structure, everything is step by step, one step leads to the next step, Everything is building blocks. Everything is a, is a composite of, of different levels. Pass the time. What, what you're saying is that the difference between a unity, if we were connected with our subconscious, we would have unity? If we were connected with our subconscious... So would you say everything starts with the conscious Yes, thought. yes. Okay. We would have... Below that, there's, a, there's another complete level of... Complete level of reality. That we don't connect with. Right. But if we were connected with that, we would have unity? Yes. We, we would have a much, a much better grasp of, of unity, of this level of unity. It's... We do know that there is a higher level. That much we do know. From the fact that we are creative, the fact that 
we have this creative flash. You're puzzling about the subject. You're racking your brain. You're eating yourself up alive. You're nervous. You're tense. You can't eat. You can't sleep. Nothing makes sense. You're confused. You're confounded. And suddenly, in this pitch black darkness, you have this eureka moment, which is the most pleasurable moment. Suddenly, a, a bolt of lightning, a flash goes off in your mind. Oh, I have the answer. It's brilliant. I have this creative, ingenious flash, something unpredictable, a new direction. And now suddenly it all makes sense. Where did this come from? I have no idea. Where, out of the blue, suddenly a flash pops into your head. Oh, I get it. I know it. I have the answer. I have the solution. Where did it come from? I have no idea. What does that tell me? That we have no idea about many things. There's a whole reality inside of us that we are clueless. The part that we are aware of, the consciousness, is such a minute part of us. There's a whole depth, there's a whole inner reality of a subconscious that's totally beyond us. And the part that we do know is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. I have no idea what that reality is. It's vague, I can't access it, I don't know what it is, but I know that, that so I know of its existence, but I don't know, it. I can't grasp it. It's beyond our frame of reference. Our frame of reference is too square, too narrow, too limited, and we simply don't have the tools to grasp it. But I know, I'm not denying its existence from the flash. The flash is the window to the soul. The flash, the creative flash, tells me that there is a soul, there's a whole world on the other side. There's a whole other world, a whole other realm of reality. And that's the dream state. And there's this, So I can have an inkling. And that's what Maimonides says. Maimonides says, Maimonides tells us, it's very interesting. Maimonides asked a question. He says, if God knows the future, and God knows everything that's going to happen, so how does a person have freedom of choice? God already knows what, you, what, you, what you're going to do, then there's no freedom of choice. How can God punish you or reward you? So Maimonides answers, the answer is, because God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. God and his knowledge and the knowing, the knower, and the knowledge and the knowing is all one and inseparable. Because how does God know everything? Because he knows himself. And therefore, he knows everything. Past, present, and future. And that's something that it's very difficult for us to understand. And therefore, since God's knowledge is different than our knowledge, if we knew the future, that means the future is predictable. Then you would have no choice. But when God knows the future, God knows the future with His knowledge, which is entirely different than our knowledge. It's a knowledge that we can't even relate to. We don't even know what God's knowledge looks like. Because God knows from within Him. And there's no separation. It's not a composite. It's not a, a composite of three different components. The knower and the ability to know and the knowing. God and His knowledge and, his wit- and what's known is all one and inseparable. And therefore, since we can't relate to it, therefore God, there's no contradiction between God's knowing and, the, and his knowing the future and our freedom of choice. So the Ravid, Rav Avram, who was, who was a colleague and a senior of Maimonides, and whose comments were placed inside Maimonides, reacts very sharply. He says, I don't get it. Maimonides asks a question. He raises a question, a very, very profound question. And what's his answer? Have faith. We can't understand God. 
God's knowledge is beyond our knowledge. So we can't relate to, we can't understand how God's knowledge, God can know the future, and yet it's not a conflict with our freedom of choice. Because God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. If we were to know the future, it would have been a conflict. That means everything is predictable. We're all robots. So there's no room for reward, there's no room for punishment. But since God's knowledge is a completely different type of knowledge, a knowledge that we can't even relate to, because we have no no, uh, analogy to God's knowledge, we know from ourselves, but our knowledge is different. Our knowledge is a composite, and God's knowledge is an absolute perfect unity. So it's a question of faith. He says, so why raise the question in the first place? To the believer, there is no question. And to the non-believer, there is no answer. You're raising a question, and then you're saying, you know, have faith, it's a divine knowledge. So, so what, why raise the question in the first place? But what the Alter Rebbe is saying here, the Rebbe explains, Alter Rebbe is saying, the Rambam gives an answer. The Rambam doesn't say it's impossible to know. Look carefully in the words of the Rambam. The Rambam says it's difficult for us to truly grasp this idea. Not impossible. Difficult to truly grasp. We can have a sense. We can imagine. We can have a, a feeling for it. For perfect unity, absolute unity. Because we do have it on a subconscious level. But our conscious level, our whole frame of reference, our structure, which begins with creativity and then works its way down to full-blown intellect, logic, and then emotions, and etc. Our frame of reference, our conscious self, everything is a composite. So it's not an absolute perfect unity. And from my flesh I know God. Since we can't relate to it because we have no analogy within our conscious selves to anything that's perfect and absolute unity because everything is a composite of different components and different parts. Therefore, we can't truly grasp the idea of perfect unity, of absolute unity, where God and His will and His wisdom and His emotions are all one and the same, inseparable, and and it's not a composite. God and His emotions are absolutely one. The knowing and the knower and the, and, and, and the knowledge is all one. We can't, we can't relate to it. He doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's difficult to grasp. But we could have a feel for it. Develop a feel for it. And that's the answer. Maimonides is giving an answer. When he asks the question, how does God's knowledge, how do you reconcile God's knowledge with freedom of choice and reward and punishment? He doesn't say, well, have faith. We can't understand God. He's saying that God's knowledge is inherently different than our knowledge. Because God's knowledge is a perfect unity, where, where there's an inherent unity, where everything is interrelated and interconnected, where everything is part of one dynamic, whole, undivisible self. Everything comes from God, everything is an expression of God, inseparable from God. Which is difficult for us because on a conscious level, it doesn't exist within us. But on the subconscious level, it does, a certain extent. So he says we, we can sense it, we can feel it, we can, but we can't truly grasp it. Once you, you understand and appreciate the limitation of our conscious self, and appreciate that our conscious self is just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on within our souls, within the door beyond our conscious self, then you can come to appreciate 
that God's knowledge is completely different. That God is a perfect unity. That God and the knower and the known is all one. And therefore, since God knows everything within Him, everything comes within God. And the knowledge also comes from within God. And God and His knowledge and God and His emotional attributes, His angers and His love and His compassion all come from within Him. Not in response to anything external, but it all comes from within Him. Therefore, it doesn't change. God doesn't change, doesn't affect Him. Because He knows Himself and therefore everything flows from that. Okay, let's learn inside. The second paragraph, page 945. But in truth... The Holy One, blessed be, is high and exalted, and holy is His name, i.e. His name too is holy, and set apart, for this is implied by the root, the Dutch. That is to say, He is holy and separated many myriads of degrees of separations in infinitum, above the quality, type, or kind of praises and exaltation which creatures could grasp and conceive in their minds. It is for this reason that God is called the Holy One, Blessed be he, for the degree to which he transcends the created universe defies mortal conception. So the highest level that we can reach, the highest level that we praise God, God is wise, God is loving, God is kind, God is brilliant, God is perfect, God is wise. That's nothing in comparison to God. God is so far removed, tens of thousands of degrees of levels removed from the greatest praise that we can imagine. What is the highest level, the highest attribute that we can imagine? Someone is perfect. Perfect love. Absolute love. Unconditional love. Perfect brilliance. To God, God is so far removed from any of that. And that's why He's called HaKadosh Baruch or God is holy. Holy means He's transcendent. He transcends all of these levels. 945, second paragraph in the bottom. The first... I supreme quality and rank in regard to created beings is wisdom, for which reason it is called the beginning, as in the phrase, the beginning of wisdom. So too, Targum Yonatan interprets Horatius in the verse, in the beginning God created to mean with wisdom. Thus, wisdom also connotes that which is first in quality and the source of all other attributes. So wisdom is creativity. Creativity is the source, is the first flash, is the first flash of consciousness. Everything that happens on a conscious level all originates with creativity, which is the window to the soul that it draws from the door beyond, from the other side, and it draws into our consciousness so that everything is the conduit for everything is really the, the creative flash. So everything is created. Creativity, everything begins with chachma, with wisdom, with creativity. For it is indeed the beginning and fountainhead of all the life forces. For from wisdom are derived understanding and knowledge. Okay, wisdom is the first flash. And then you take that flash and you develop it into Bina. You develop it into logical analysis until you truly grasp the concept. Because a flash is very ephemeral. You know, you have a, a lightning bolt and it disappears. It comes and goes. Like you wake up in the morning and the dream fades away very quickly. Unless you grasp it, it just fades away. You can have a brilliant flash, a brilliant concept, but it's very vague. You still don't understand it fully. You don't, can't communicate it fully. You don't grasp it fully. So that leads you to the next level. Now you have to take it and analyze it and break it apart and, and put it together. Take this concept and flesh it out and develop it and build a beginning, an introduction, a foyer, 
uh, one steps leading to the next level, the next level, a very structured, with handles, with definitions. So that's the next step. And then that leads to the next step, which is Das. Das is taking this concept and drawing the implications of the concept, turning it into conviction, turning it into energy, into momentum, into decisions, into decisiveness. It's not enough to know, but taking that knowledge and turning it into, into, so what am I going to do about it? How am I going to apply it? Application, personal application, which is the key, the connection to the emotions. That leads to the emotions. Continue. And uh, from them flow all the emotive attributes of the rational soul, such as love and kindness and mercy and the like. All of these derive from the intellectual attributes. This is seen vividly that a child having no wisdom is always angry and unkind. Even his love is for trivial things which are unworthy of being loved. So firstly, a person who is mature, a person who has the maturity, I can love, I can hate and love at the same time. I can see things in the person that I hate. At the same time, I can truly love what's good in them. Children can't do that. Children, and children, by the way, doesn't mean, as a previous Lubavitcher Rebbe said, Jewish years are not measured by the passport. A person could be a 90-year-old person, but he's an emotionally and psychologically and spiritually a child, a 5-year-old child that never, that never climbed out from under the table. So a person is mature, emotionally mature, spiritually mature, a person could see negatives in the person and really hate those negative attributes. At the same time, I can see all the positive qualities in that same person and love them for that. You know, you can have two opposites in the same time. I can love and I can hate at the same time. child can't do that. Children, either my heart loves, if I love, I love all the way. <laughs> and if I hate, I hate all the way. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no balance. There's no blending or mixing it's 100% one way or 100% the other way that's very childish because there's no intellect it's not tempered by intellect but what's better? no it's childish of course it's childish it's childish there's nothing good about it there's nothing good about children about childishness we we don't we don't praise childishness there's nothing good about childishness you have to grow up you have to mature a person mature that's just saying emotion ultimately has to be based on intellect tempered by intellect Guided being intellect is the heat, but you need light. The intellect is the light. You have to draw electrical cords from the from the brain to the heart to illuminate the heart, to guide the heart, and that the the, the emotion should be mature emotions. Based and also he says children desire childish things. A child he wants to play with toys because he can't conceive anything greater. When a person has enough awareness, presence of mind, and you realize that you want to master a subject, you want to, you want to understand something, you want to, and that's, and that's, and that's, uh, that's considered uh, something you want to pursue and master, and you direct your emotions. A child can't, can't perceive that I'm going to spend my years studying something or education, deprive myself for years and study hard. Uh, an adult makes a mature decision and says, listen, I want to do something with my life. I want to do something meaningful with my life. So I'm ready to make a sacrifice to spend years and years depriving myself. But knowing that I'm going to learn and master a subject, children are raw seeds. They're full of potential. They're ripe with potential. They're ripe with potential. And there's a childlike innocence. 
children don't lie. Children can't lie. We all remember the first lie that we said. Children are innocent. Children are pure. And that's why children learn so much. Because children are almost in the, in the hypnotic state till the age of five, six. Children are like walking around the hypnotic state. They're thirsty for knowledge. There's no preconceived notions. They're open. They, they're like sponges. They absorb. They're curious. Their curiosity is endless. And then we grow up in a negative way. <laughs> we become satisfied, content. We stop learning. We stop listening. We stop being curious. We die. The geniuses in life, the Einsteins of life, the Newtons of life, never stop being children, childlike, in the positive sense. They never lost their curiosity. Everyone else was satisfied and content. And they kept on asking questions. Why does the apple fall? It doesn't make no sense. They never lost their childlike innocence. And that's why, that's why they were brilliant. That's what made them brilliant. They never lost that spirit of curiosity, of seeking, of openness, of learning. So that's, in that sense, children are positive. You should never lose that childlike innocence. But children are raw. Children are egotistical. Children are selfish. And they're not responsible. They can't be otherwise. They're not held responsible for that. They can't, they can't even be otherwise. Right. That's a childlike innocence. So you have to take that quality. That's, you shouldn't be childish. You should be childlike. It's a big difference. <laughs> there are people who are childish. And 90-year-old people are childish. But there are people who are childlike. Another great quality of children which we can all learn from. You ever see children fight with each other? I'll never talk to you again. The rest of my life. <laughs> Ten minutes later, they're playing again. What happened? Yeah, Ten minutes ago, you were swearing. You never get to talk to them. Adults. You slide. One adult has slided another adult. They're 30 years old. 99 years old in old age and they're still not talking to each other. Why are you insulting me? They, they're senile. They even forgot why they're fighting. But all they know is you're terrible. I hate you. I'll never forgive you. And they're miserable. Children don't care. I'm going to fight the rest of my life. I'm crazy. I'm going to be miserable the rest of my life because of what he insulted me. What a big deal. You make up and you move on. What's the, who, do you, who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? I want to be happy. I don't want to be miserable. But adults are egotistical. Oh, I want to be right. You insulted me, that's it. Forget it. I don't care about anything. I don't care about this. It's World War III. Forever and now I'm going to bear a grudge forever. Even when you forget the reason, you don't even remember the reason. But that I'll never forget. So that's, that's the illness of adulthood. That's the egotism of adulthood. You should never lo- lose that childlike innocence. You want to be happy. You want to be joyful. You're just open and you're vulnerable. The children are vulnerable. That's why they learn so much. That's why they're so lovable. As adults, we, we, we are afraid of vulnerability. We're terrified of vulnerability. So we create all these armor shields that don't let anyone get near us. And we're miserable. We'd rather be alone and be miserable than be vulnerable and have a real relationship, have a real marriage. As difficult as and that's what marriage is. Marriage is where an adult takes the best of, tr- of the childlike, returns, regains that childlike innocence and purity. Where you can remove your, ch- your armor and your chinks and you can make yourself vulnerable and childlike. That childlike innocence, just like Adam and Chava before the sin. 
The husband and wife are like other mechaber before the sin. Paradise. You bring a par- you create a paradise in your home, in your bedroom, a paradise where God is present, pure, innocent, love, unconditional, make yourself vulnerable, innocent, purity. As adults, children don't get married. As adults, then you have the best of both worlds. You marry the, the qualities of adulthood, of self-sufficient, of ego, of, of, and, but with all the advantages of child, childlike innocence and purity. That's the ideal. So, but tr- Judaism never romanticizes children. As, you know, children are raw seeds. They're full of potential, ripe. But you have to educate them. Education, education, education. Our understanding of education is entirely different than the American understanding of education. The American understanding of education, is, you know, is you park your kids in school. You know, it's a, it's a babysitting service. You know, children should not be heard, received, just stay out of the way, let the parents. Judaism understands education is everything. Because a child is a seed full of potential. <clears throat> and you have to cultivate that seed with tender, loving care. It's very easy for a worm to come and destroy that seed and that, and that very delicate shoot that's springing up. And you have to watch it and protect it and water it with your tears and with your effort and pray to Hashem because with the best effort you still need Hashem's help and everything should come out all right. So we understood children, you look at a child, you don't see the child. A child is a seed. You ever taste a seed? A seed is horrible. A seed is bitter. A seed is nothing. Children, children can be the nastiest creatures in the world without even knowing it. They're cruel to their classmates. They can destroy their classmates without even realizing what they're doing. Children are nasty, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. Children need to be educated. But a, an educator, a parent, doesn't see a seed. A parent looks at a child. He sees their potential. I see a tree. I see the luscious tree that this seed is going to grow into through my effort through my discipline, through my caring and focusing and tender loving care and, and, the, and the partnership with the teachers. and with the, So Judaism never romanticized children. Like, oh, children are so pure and innocent and loving. That, I mean, that, that, that's childish. That's mindless. That's the type of emotion that children have. That's childish. An adult sees deeper. An adult, all emotions are based on, on intellect. The intellect has to be engaged and involved. Then it's a real emotion. Then it's a meaningful emotion. Then you desire things that are worth desiring. And you pursue things that are worth pursuing. And you have the maturity and the discipline and the presence of mind to pursue it and to sacrifice. And, to, and you can see the good and you can see the negative at the same time. You don't just get angry. You don't outburst of anger, outburst of instincts. or You don't just follow your instincts. There's a presence of mind. There's a bringing together a, bal- a balancing. I can see the positive, I can see the negative. It's not black and white. There, there, there's, there's many, many factors. You can have rachmanas. have compassion. Children, are not com- children don't know the meaning of compassion. Children can't have compassion. Because they have childish emotions. Because the emotions are not based on intellect. There's no intellectual involvement. So he says real emotions are based on intellect. When the intellect is involved, then a person... When a person is young, he plays with toy cars. When he grows up, then he wants real cars. <laughs> a person wants power. Politics. A person wants power. I don't, you know, a person wants money. A person wants power. A person wants to find meaning in life. 
you know, a person has maturity, so you guide your ambition, you guide your emotions, your loves and your ambitions for something that's real, that's meaningful. And the greater the mind, the more mature the mind, the deeper the mind, the more it guides your ambitions for something more profound and more meaningful and lasting. So real emotions are based, are based on intellect. Continue. This is seen vividly, that a child having no wisdom is always angry and unkind. And even his love for trivial things which are unworthy of being loved. Because he lacks the understanding to love things which are worthy of love, but love varies with the level of one's understanding. Thus the emotions are dependent on the intellect and understanding inasmuch as they derive from them. The other Bruce, you want to continue? From the, the second paragraph in the bottom, on 946. But the emotive attributes of the soul, words and letters of thought, which you point. The soul thinks of that which it loves, or of how to perform deeds of kindness and mercy. And so it is with the other emotive uh, attributes. They all serve as a source for the words and letters of thought. Okay, so you think, think derives, thought derives from emotions. What do you think about? You think about what you love. If a thought pops into your head, usually you, th- you think about things that you care about. So it's the emotion that leads to the next level, to thought. Even intellectual thought. You would think intellectual thought has nothing to do with emotions. I'm thinking a concept. Not true. Every thought derives from emotion. Because why am I thinking this intellectual thought? Because I love it. I love to figure things out. I love the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of intellect. Thinking, people enjoy thinking. Thinking, people enjoy thinking. So there's a love there. So love is behind everything. The emotional attributes are behind everything. All thought. Even intellectual thought, abstract thought. So one leads to the next. Intellect leads to emotion, and emotion leads to thought. Continue. Within every thought in the world, there is called some emotive attribute that causes one to think that thought. And this attribute is a signifying force of that. Ah, not only is it a cause, like an external cause that leads to thought, but it actually animates the thought. Because the thought is affected by the emotion. Something that you love very deeply, you think about it differently. You're thinking, it's a, it's a much deeper thinking process, thought process. So the emotion actually affects the thought. How you think about it. The focus is different. The concentration is different. The thinking is much more alive, is clearer, is more vivid. So the emotion also gives life to the thought. Not only the emotion brings about the thought that you think about things that you love, but the thought actually, the emotion expresses itself within the thought. That's something that you... There's a difference if you think about something you don't care so much about or if you're thinking about something that's really close to your heart. When you're thinking about something close to your heart, the thinking is different. The thought is different. It's deep concentration. It's a different thought. The thought is affected. It gives life. It's a robust thought. It's a vibrant thought. It's a vivid thought. Versus a regular thought. We, we always think. You never stop thinking. You can't stop thinking. But you, there's a difference if you're thinking about something that really matters to you really care about or thinking about you're just thinking so you see that the, the, the emotion actually gives life to the thought energizes the thought it expresses itself through the thought okay and the letters of uh, a man's thought precede the letters of his speech 
and they, the letters of song, are their actual vivifying force. Okay. And then thought leads to speech. What do you what do you speak about? You speak, you express, you reveal what you're thinking. And again, it's not just the thought is the cause of the speech. The thought actually animates the speech. There's a difference if you're speaking about something that you care about. And depending on what you're feeling, that will express itself in the words. If it's a stern speech because you're angry or you're giving a stern command, the words itself will be in a tone of sternness. If it's a loving, loving words, the words will come out soft and poetic and loving and romantic. If you speak about something you care about, every person has a Churchill hidden inside of them. Catch a person speak about something that matters to him. His rent going up or something. <laughs> You'll hear the most eloquent, Reaganistic, uh, Churchillian speech. If you speak about something you care about, passionate, eloquent, the words are different, the words are alive, the words are breathing, the words are vibrant, the words are powerful, intense, exciting. Or if you speak about something that's boring to you. A lawyer in court is going through the motions, <laughs> speaking about something that they couldn't care less about. Or you speak about something that matters to a person. Your life is on the line. The words are alive. The words are animated. So this, the, the thought expresses itself in the speech. The emotion expresses itself in the speech. Okay, and that leads to the next level, which is... Speech. Rise to action, such as of charity and kindness, as in the case of a king who orders his servants to be charitable. His speech causes his charitable thought to result in action. So even if you don't speak, a person doesn't always speak before he acts, but you speak to yourself. It's also a form of speech. You tell yourself, okay, now it's time to act. Now it's time to implement. It's very nice. You understand the concept. You have a feeling for the concept. You're thinking about the concept. No. Now it's time to go ahead and start acting already. Enough thinking and speaking. and I mean, enough with the internal. Go ahead and do it. So that's an internal command-like. You tell yourself, you push yourself. You command yourself, okay, now I'm going to head and do it. So there's a process of speech. Before every action, mind every action, there's a process, internal process of speech. So this is the whole conscious spectrum. From the creative moment, the eureka moment, that flash of lightning, a bolt of lightning, all the way to the end, the lowest level, the end, the end result is the action, the deed. So it had to go through a whole chain reaction. It didn't just happen in a flash overnight. The creative process led to the analytical process. The analytical process led to the decision-making process, the conviction process. The conviction process, decision-making process led to the emotion. The emotion led to the thought. The thought led to the speech. And the speech led to the action. How many levels did we count? What? Is it always all that order? Yes. That's the conscious world. That's our whole conscious world. Our whole conscious world starts with the creative 
Intellect, emotion, thought, speech, action. That's our whole world. That's our frame of reference. On a personal level, sometimes I do the action before I think and speak and before I do the other things. There are people who speak also without thinking. Speak and do. Yeah, no, but here he's not. Here he's not. Here he's not speaking about this. Here he's not speaking about good and evil. Just speaking about the way the human being operates. But the truth is, even when you speak without thinking, but the truth is, the words you're saying had to be thought out at one time. You're speaking words that you once thought about. Otherwise, you, otherwise, you you'd be speaking nonsense, mumble jumble. If you're saying something coherent, something that makes sense, that means you once thought about it. You're just taking out of your file and you're using something. So there was speech. Yes, it is mindless, but there, is, there was a level of speech before. <laughs> and even when a man himself does some deed which he had thought of doing, in this instance, no speech is involved. This thought leads directly to action. Nevertheless, the other habit goes on to say, here too, in order for the life force to descend from thought to action, it must pass through an intermediary stage which resembles speech. The power of the soul and its life force, which holds itself to this deed, is as absolute nothingness to the power of the soul and its life force, which holds itself to speech. They in other words, to, to the speech, action doesn't add anything. There's a big difference between thought, speech, and action. Thought is for yourself. Thought is self-expression. You're revealing to yourself. It's like speaking to yourself. But as you're revealing to yourself what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart, you can't stop thinking. Because it's so connected to your soul. It's self-expression. Just like your soul is constant. You never turn off your soul. So thought is also constant. But it's self-revelation. You're revealing to yourself what's going on in your mind or what's going on in your heart or your will or your pleasure. Etc. Speech is already revealing to another person. I'm letting another person know what's going on within me. What's going on in my mind, what's going on in my heart. I'm communicating to another person what's going on within me. So speech is, on one hand, it's self-revelation. I'm revealing to you what's going on in me. But you can walk away, and once you've said what you've said, it's done. The person, it's out there. The person heard you, and there's no taking back what you said. It's on tape. It's there. You said it. It's in the person's mind. You said it. You can't walk away from it. And you can walk away from it, and the word has almost an independent reality. It's separate from you, but... But it's self-expression. I'm revealing to you what's going on inside of me. Which is why speech is only to your peer. I speak to a human being. I can't talk to a tree and I'm not going to talk to a stone. I have to talk to another human being, to an animal. Real communication is I talk to someone who's on my level. So I'm revealing to them and it's meaningful to them. That I'm revealing to them, I'm sharing with them something that's going on inside of me. My mind, my, my, my heart, etc. So speech is already more distant than thought. Thought, you can't separate the person from the thought. It's inseparable from the person. It's within the person. Speech, I am communicating. It's my words. I am revealing to you what is the speech, what is the content of the speech. It's a revelation of what, what's going on inside of me. But nevertheless, the words, once the words are out, the words are 
independent. But nevertheless, the words don't leave me to the extent it only reaches another human being, someone who's my peer. While action is completely separate from me. Action doesn't have to be with a peer, my peer. I can, I can fix a shoe, I can change a stone. I can. Action is not even a self-expression. Action is not a revelation of what's going on inside of me. A person could work and work and work and I have no clue. A person could be working 50 years and I have no idea what's going on inside of them. They're not communicating, not revealing or communicating what's going on in their mind and their heart. It's just action. I'm working, I'm doing. It can be as an art. art. It might not be, but it might also be. Yes, it could be. But it's... But, right, that's true. But, since, but the impact of the art is also, the art is on a canvas. The art could be a sculpture, on a stone, something that's very, that's very distant from me. So I am expressing something, but I'm revealing it in something that's very, very, very distant from me. So action, and certain types of actions, are the most distant from a person. The fact that you see in general that action is something, it could be in a stone, and it could be... V- doesn't have to be self-revelatory, it tells me that action in general is the most distant. So you can't compare action to speech. It's like you can't compare speech to action. Just like speech doesn't add anything to thought, or, or, or speech to thought. The speech, I'm speaking to you. If I were alone on an island, if I'm a Robinson Crusoe, I don't need speech. I have thought, or I have no one to talk to. So speech is for you. Speech doesn't add anything. To the thought. As a matter of fact, for every w- ten words that I think, for every word that I think, I need ten words to express. Sometimes people have to talk to themselves. Yeah. But. <laughs> no, I mean, they do. I mean, I know some people yeah. are thinking through a problem. They yeah, it's fine. Right, because it's, it's, it's helpful. Isn't that like epistemology? If a tree falls in the wood and nobody's there to hear it, did it really make a sound? So. But but there's no need. It doesn't really add anything to the to the speech. I mean, to the thought. Whatever I'm thinking is all there in thought, in a higher form, in a more concentrated form, in a more intense form, in a more profound form. And does thought add anything to emotion? No. Do you love in French or in English? Love transcends language. And this concept, two plus two is four. The raw concept, the raw conceptualization, the raw understanding. It transcends culture. The communist scientist has a perfect rapport with his capitalist counterpart who don't agree on anything. But, but it's raw science. It's raw concept. Raw intellect. Totally transcends language. So one level in comparison to another level, the other level is meaningless, insignificant, doesn't add anything. doesn't make any difference. It's like to the atom. Put yourself in the shoes of the atom. To, if you, on the atomic level, to the atom. Does chemicals add anything? Chemicals mean anything? What's chemicals? On the atomic level, all there are is atoms. The world of chemicals means nothing in the world of atoms. In the world of atoms, in the world of chemicals, the, the external surface, skin reality is, is, is nothing. It's all about chemicals. So when you go to a deeper level, the lower level is nothing in comparison to that level. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't mean anything. Not, the atom is not saying that there are no chemicals. And the chemical is not saying that, 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 that there is no skin the surface reality. But in that world, it means nothing. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't mean nothing. So too, within a person, the animation, the vitality within action is nothing in comparison to the vitality with, within speech. The level of vitality that the soul 
has within speech. The level of vitality within speech is nothing in comparison to the level of the soul's vitality that, that, that it expresses within thought. The level of uh, vitality within thought is nothing in comparison to the level of emotion. The level of the, uh, the soul expression of emotion. And the level of, of emotion is nothing in comparison to the level of intellect. So here you have within a human being itself you can appreciate that one level, a lower level in comparison to a higher level is meaningless, is insignificant. Does it depend on the quality of the, I mean, how the, the listener? Because if you don't have a listener, the speech doesn't mean anything. So that who you're speaking to has some impact on you in any way? Yeah, speech is very frustrating. Uh, yeah, that's why rabbis are very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> you it's very difficult speaking to yourself. Uh, you answer to her question. You modify what you're saying to, the, to fit the person you're speaking to. You don't talk in platitudes to somebody that doesn't understand you. Don't use such big words. They, they say a good speaker speaks to a thousand people as if he's speaking to one. A poor speaker speaks to one person as if he's speaking to a thousand. <laughs> we all know such speakers. <laughs> they take themselves so seriously. and they're, they're like giving world speeches. Only There's one person is half asleep right in front of you. <laughs> you, know, you know the story of the, uh, the speaker went on and on. And the more he got into the speech, he got so enthusiastic you get deeper and deeper into it. One hour goes by. Two hours, the community sitting in Shpul, one by one, they start leaving. Three hours go by, and he's just warming up. Another half of the congregation leaves. Four, five, six hours. Finally, he winds down, takes a look, and he sees this one person. He says, oh, this is my soulmate. One person who's left in the crowd who appreciates me. I finally met my soulmate who understands me and he goes on to another three hours. Finally, when he's done, walks down and says, so, how do you like my speech? He says, I didn't hear a word you said. <laughs> he says, so what are you doing here? He says, I'm the next speaker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's finish the chapter. Go ahead. To the same degree, is there no comparison between the power of the soul and its life force which thoughts itself in the speech of man and the power of the soul and its life force which clothes itself in man's actions. Therefore, when this power and life force has descended so far that it is able to clothe itself in action, it has already undergone contractions, condensations, which are far below the power of speech. Likewise, by the distance of the body from the soul, is the relation of the letters of speech to the letters of thought. So thought, in comparison to action, thought is like the life, the soul, that animates the action. Uh, I mean, speech. Thought is the soul that animates the speech. Emotion is the soul that animates the thought, which is like the body to the emotion. Emotion is like the body in comparison to the soul, which is the intellect which is the cause and, the, and animates, because the intellect, the emotion, is based on the intellect. So the deeper the intellect, the more animated the emotion is. So just like the body is completely nothing in comparison to the soul, the body is nothing in comparison to the soul, so too the, the action is nothing in comparison to the speech, the speech is nothing in comparison to the thought, the thought is nothing in comparison to the emotion, and the emotion is nothing in comparison 
to the intellect. You want to continue? Sure. And likewise is the relation of the letters of thought to the essence of the emotive attribute, which is clothed because it animates it, i.e., thought that derives from an emotion is in no way comparable to the emotion itself. And likewise, the relation of the essence and life force to the emotive attribute in comparison with the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge which together constitute the intellect from which this attribute was derived. We thus see that in the chain of descent, from level to level, beginning with wisdom and culminating with action, each level bears no comparison at all, even to the level that immediately precedes it. Emotions cannot be compared to intellect. Thought not be compared to emotions, and so on. Surely then there can be no comparison whatsoever between the lowest degree of action and the highest degree of wisdom. All this applies to the soul of man and the soul of all those created, all those created beings in the higher, in all, in all the higher and lower worlds. In all of them, wisdom is the beginning and source of the life force. God, however, as will soon be concluded, is as distant from the degree of wisdom as he is from that of action. From the divine perspective, action and wisdom are humble. Okay, so to be continued, next week we'll continue this line of thinking, um, and which will lead to the point that he's making that how distant Hashem is, how his knowledge is different, and how his relation to his attributes are different, etc. To be continued. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.